Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On Commons People this week. Isn't it time she took responsibility and resigned? Pressure grows on Amber Rudd over Windrush. The, the government's position is clear. We will not remain in the customs union. Parliament might have other ideas. Based on the facts this hearing, and it's fair, um, I will be exonerated. And Labour's anti-Semitism problem just won't go away. All of this and more on Commons People. Hello and welcome to Commons People, HuffPost UK's politics podcast with me, Owen Bennett. And this week I am joined by Mr. Paul War. Hello, Paul. Hello. And I'm joined by Mr. Ned Simons. Hello. All right, wake up. <laughs> Jesus. Just us three. Usually you say hello first. I know, so I but it's, it's just us three this week, isn't it? Yeah. So sorry about that, everyone. Uh, let's crack on, shall we? Uh, the personal stories of those affected by the Windrush debacle are not the only things heaping pressure on Home Secretary Amber Rudd. Labour has repeatedly called for Rudd to resign from her position, and any sense that she had ridden out the storm disappeared on Wednesday when she revealed she was not aware of removal targets for illegal migrants being used in the Home Office. Here's Labour's Yvette Cooper questioning Rudd at the Home Affairs Committee on Wednesday. Targets for removals, when were they set? Uh, we don't have targets for removals. But you did? I, I don't know what, 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 what are you referring We've to. We just heard thing? from the previous evidence that the Home Office and individual, there are regional targets for net removals. I, have, I didn't hear the testimony. I'm not sure what shape that might be in. But if you're asking me are the numbers of people we expect to be removed, um, that's not how we operate. Rod's answer changed from that's not happening to I didn't know it was happening on Thursday in Parliament. Here's a clip. The immigration arm of the Home Office has been using local targets for internal performance management. These were not published targets against which performance was assessed. But if they were used inappropriately, then I am clear that this will have to change. Uh, So apparently, according to uh, the Immigration Services Union's Lucy Morton. She said the net removal targets certainly do exist and she said she was bemused as to why the Home Secretary would say they do not. We heard her in the Parliament today, Ned, uh, sorry, Thursday, saying that she wasn't kind of aware of these news were all regional. uh, uh, Diane Abbott's called her resignation. Is, is this is this the final straw? Is Rudd going to go? I don't know, but I think what has been noticeable is that I thought Rudd, whilst under a lot of pressure, had been dealing with it quite well. When she was in the Commons before, she was quite calm and quite firm. But then in front of the committee yesterday, being questioned by Cooper, I thought she seemed really nervous, um, really didn't handle it very well. Um, I think it was another lesson in sort of why you never want to do anything that kind of annoys Yvette Cooper. Yvette Cooper was so forensic in her questioning that Rudd sort of fell apart in front of the committee and then made that mistake of saying that there was no targets in the Home Office and of course it turned out there were. And then today in the urgent question in the Commons again I thought she was under a lot of pressure having to admit that she just didn't know what's going on in her department. Resigning issue, Paul, surely you should know what's going on in your department. If you're setting targets for the removal of illegal immigrants you should 
you should know about that, right? You should know about that. Mm. And I would have thought, actually, it does crystallise what is her biggest problem, which is not an individual sort of responsibility for Windrush, which in many ways lies with the Prime Minister. That policy was set by her. But it, it's, it suggests that if you don't know what's going on in your own department, even if it is one of the world's most dysfunctional departments, famously described by uh, John Reed as not fit for purpose and still clearly isn't. Then he um, split it after saying that, didn't he? He did, but, and, and it's supposed to have got better. But, you know, it's still a, a massive sort of remit she's got. If you haven't got control of your department, then there is something seriously wrong. Um, and... I was really surprised that she arrived at that select committee hearing really not briefed at all. You would have thought beforehand she'd say to the officials, look, give me everything you've got. You know, I'm going to get this is really important. This parliamentary select committee. I've, I've survived, you know, question time. I've survived homeless questions. I've survived the statement on this. But I want to be briefed even more because who knows what they're going to ask me. And my, the only conclusion I've got is that that the officials, she must have asked for that briefing. The officials didn't give her one. Why didn't they give her one? Why didn't they tell her how many deportations that or threatened deportations have been? Why didn't they tell her how many people had been incarcerated? Why didn't they tell her, you know, the level of uh, the low level question of so-called low-hanging fruit that people had identified but obviously also, you know select committees can throw curveballs at you why didn't they but, just watch the evidence session that had gone on before Averard came? because this question about these targets came up yep. the previous hour yeah so why didn't you have someone mm. there because surely you'd go right so hand me a yeah. note now of things that, that came up in that session which that was just poor but you planning, know what right? this whole issue of targets has actually been the undercurrent of the entire Windrush saga. Because if you genuinely think that Theresa May's hostile environment has driven this, even if you don't think it's direct orders from a minister, the, we've been so, we talked about this in previous podcasts, we think, it, and many people suspect, it's overzealous officials feeling under pressure to deliver. Now, that means deliver what? deliver a target and so I'm surprised that she hasn't gone into the department and said where are the targets did they did they stop in 2015 do we still have them yeah, I mean, I mean the fact that you know, immigration targets isn't a new thing. We've been talking about the government's net migration target for years. So, you know, it's not the fact that she hasn't known that how they've been trying to reach that target. The Windrush scandal aside, if you've got this migration target to meet, surely if you're Home Secretary, you should be then finding out how it's being achieved. And if part but, of that is having local deportation targets, yeah. why wouldn't you know that? And, and I think part of the problem, I think, has been traditionally they've been worried about you know, papers like the Mail and the Sun getting on their case for the lack of deportations. Don't forget there's a massive pressure at one point, and this happened under New Labour as well, you know. Why aren't you deporting enough people? Part of the reason is we simply don't have decent records on people. And, you know, that's the whole other issue that really hasn't really been approached in Windrush. If I hate to say it, but if we did have ID cards, you really wouldn't have had a Windrush scandal, would you? Um Labour have been calling for resignations. I mean, they really cranked it up on Sunday, on the Sunday show, Stormbury, McDonnell. They cranked it up again this week, Jeremy Corbyn and PMQs, heard at the top of the show, calling for resignations. It doesn't seem to have shifted it. Why have Labour... Why don't they seem landing in blows on this? I just want to caveat this by saying, when did that keeper asked her question in PMQs yesterday? Everyone, all the, a lot of the journalists, including me, were like, that's how you asked the question. I thought Corbyn had been poor. And then a lot of people on Twitter, oh, typical journalists applauding a centrist, not praising Corbyn enough. But I think Corbyn's questions yesterday in PMQs were terrible. We kept talking about the atmosphere. Go on, process. Just first question, why hasn't she resigned? Second question, why hasn't she resigned? Keep going on, process, surely. Well, I mean, there's horses for courses in a way. Um, I can see what Corbyn was trying to do, and I can. It, and it was a different job from Yvette Cooper's. Um, and you know, I think what's interesting is that 
the reaction to the to the difference between their questions sort of underlines the split in the Labour Party at exactly the time when we be, keep being told on the doorstep in the local elections the party's united. You know, this party's supposed to be, you know, the momentum, people are hanging out with the, the so-called centrists, the long-term activists, and they're all going out and knocking on doorsteps. So what surprised me is that there wasn't a sort of coordination between a front bench and maybe Yvette Cooper's office. Now, maybe that that's just a lesson for going forward, that both of them, they'd need to coordinate, you know. Um, obviously, she's got a different job as select committee chairman, um, but there is, you know, she's a Labour MP at the end of the day, and maybe there should be the the leaders' officer should be, should be telling her what their lines are going to be, and she should do vice versa. There, there is the other issue, of course, about Yvette Cooper having been a leadership candidate. Now that's that's in the background, and people like Owen Jones have already said today, you know, I can't believe the group think of journalists that you know are ignoring the fact that she was supporting these 2014 immigration bill and she wanted to whip people through it. The, the, you know, there's. There is certainly in some bits of the Labour Party a reconsideration of what they did and did it do it wrong. Lord Wood, Stuart Wood, who was Ed Miliband's advisor, on Sunday night said, actually, I admire looking back. Jeremy Corbyn was right to stand up against this bill and vote against it. And abstaining, which is what Labour did, maybe wasn't the right thing. Well, everyone was getting sort of sucked into the kind of UKIP thing at the time, weren't they? Yeah. I just want to say, Paul, you mentioned Owen Jones' podcast again. I will. I will never do this podcast again. <laughs> Is that a promise? Yeah, yeah I just. I, ah. Or it would just be quizzes. Ah. I just. I do not want to hear his name, uh, Mr. Ned Simons. Why don't? But why haven't Labour forced Amber Rudd's resignation? In the olden days, she would have resigned. Says Emily Thornberry. Why? Is she still in post? Surely Labour should... This is an easy scalp to get, isn't it? Uh, potentially. I mean, one reason might be that the Prime Minister's not as strong as normal Prime Ministers would be and Rudd doesn't want to doesn't want to quit and isn't being forced out. But also, is the goal to get her to resign? I mean, politically, an atmosphere where the government is looking so both disorganised and incapable and also so mean-spirited towards migrants that people do want to be here. Um, you know, the, the more this rumbles on, potentially politically, it's good for Labour to have it carrying on they yeah, can point I mean, oppo- to how, how oppositions prefer is, so. ministers to be wounded rather than dead yeah. let's be honest and same for prime ministers if it looks like constant chaos and people mm. still don't quit then in a way it's a result for the opposition don't forget that okay fair enough Speaking of things that just won't die, the Customs Union is back. As we record this podcast, MPs are holding a debate in Parliament about whether the UK should stay in the Customs Union with the EU after Brexit. It's a non-binding vote and Tories aren't expected to take part. But if some Conservative MPs back the motion, it will certainly put the willies up Downing Street. But Theresa May is clear. Here's a clip. The British people voted to leave the European Union. In voting to leave the European Union, they voted to leave the single market and the customs union. We will, what we want to ensure is that we as a country are able to negotiate, independently negotiate free trade deals around the rest of the world. Now, why, for the love of everything, are we talking about customs unions again? I thought, Ned, this was put to bed. I thought, we're leaving the A, who, what, when, how customs union. I thought it was gone. I thought it was the dead parrot. Well, you brought it up. But like, yeah, <laughs> why are we talking about it again? Why is it back on the table? Well, because a lot of MPs want us to still be in one. I mean, that's the kind of short answer, isn't it? And they think that we can get one. They think that 
um, David Davis, for example, this kind of is related to this, honest, um, at the select committee, he did reveal and confirm that the, the final deal will be amendable, that the motion to approve it will be amendable, raise the possibility that MPs can vote to send him back to Brussels and negotiate another deal. Which is so a bit, massive change. Which is a massive change from what's been said before, a huge change. What didn't get as much attention as I thought it would do, I think perhaps because of Windrush. So the customs union debate today is just, again, I think, them chipping away at the idea that we're leaving the customs union or there's not another simpler way. If you're if you're my old my old mucker Nigel Farage, Paul, and all my old Brexit mates, um, should you be worried? Should you be worried that this is that Britain's going to stay in the customs union, that Parliament, the MPs are going to have have their way on this? I think they should be worried mainly because at the weekend the, the Sunday Times made clear that actually some people in Number Ten were thinking, look, the parliamentary arithmetic is so tough here. If the Remainer Tories dig in, then there's not a lot we can do. We don't have the numbers. And so they were trying to be pragmatic. Now, I've been told that actually that was officials rather than ministers in, in any sense. And that was officials thinking outside the box. But, you know, I mean, you can imagine a, a cabinet minister privately saying who was neither Remain nor Brexiteer saying, look, you know, if we haven't got the numbers, let's think about some other solution. And it's the other solution. Like Ned said, you know, it's... It, um, Amending that motion and the meaningful vote, the only thing really you're going to amend it about is concrete things like a customs union and the single market. You're not going to amend it with anything else that really has got a chance of uniting all the House. And so if you are talking about that, um, there's this this idea, once again, that you're going to have to have maybe a complicated, complex solution to the problem and that it's not easy. The good thing about a customs union, in a way, is it sounds easy. Um, but e because we've, we will have left the EU... It's not easy to achieve as well as having migration controls, as well as having other controls. So I was talking to a cabinet minister this week who said, never underestimate estimate just how much complexity our answers are going to have. Whether it's on the Irish hard border and it's a very high tech solution or whether it's some kind of customs union that we're not going to call a customs union. And I think that's the point. It might come down to terminology. It might actually be a customs union, but we won't call it that. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was talking to... Uh I saw a close to cabinet minister this week, and because one of the things put up was this idea that Theresa May will turn this into an effective confidence vote. Mm. You know, if you don't back me on this customs union, then I'm going to have to call a general election. Um, and I, a BBC kind of ran with this, and down the street shot it down. But some of those cabinet ministers said, no, that's kind of how it's being discussed at the moment, that it might have to do it in these kind of terms. I mean, that's a hell of a double or quits from Theresa May, and she ain't that good at double or quits, <laughs> as we saw last year. I mean, do you think that she's really going to go for that? She's really going to put everything on, on this on this vote of back me or we're leaving the customs union when the parliamentary arithmetic says no. I guess she's going to say to Anna well, Subri, would you be willing to put Jeremy Corbyn in Downing Street over this? Yeah, I mean, if they feel that they can't win it and the only way they can win it is by telling Tory MPs that a vote against it is a vote for Jeremy Corbyn, then she might have to. It depends. Well, I mean, well, there's got a fixed term Parliament Act, of course. Oh, yeah, have to but, come back to Parliament oh, yeah, and all that. <laughs> do all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's why it's, it, it, so. that's why you'd have to call it an effective yeah, confidence yeah, yeah. motion. And there's no question. Don't forget, the longer this goes on, the 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 more we don't have a solution on the table, uh, the more difficult it becomes for the government because they're just running out of time and. You know, it might get to October, probably November, maybe even December before the House of Commons does have this meaningful vote. Some ministers want it to be in January because they think that will be so late that their opponents will be screwed and they, they would throw the whole thing out of kilter. So it might be December, it might be January. Um, and then the crunch really arrives because, say, the Commons... People say 
Dominic Grieve decides that this is such an important national interest issue and gets five or six, seven other Tories alongside him. Well, I've worked him. out you need to get, if you, if you take the Labour leavers who will probably vote with the government on this, yeah. I worked out you need to get 13 Tory MPs but, to flip. Yeah, but if, that's why it's interesting making it a confidence motion because it flips both ways. If it's a confidence motion... Labour MPs will be a massive, massive yeah. pressure to get rid of Theresa May. Yeah. So you can't bank on those Labour leavers. Absolutely. You really can't. And that's why the pressure will still be on Grieve and Morgan and people like that, who are not like Ken Clark and Anna Subri. We know where they're going to vote. There's no question. But if you, it's the other sort of outer ring of Remainers. How determined are they going to be? We don't know. Just finally, would could Theresa May's pitch be to the Anna Subris of this world? Not vote for me, uh, vote against this, and you'll put Corbyn in Downing Street. He's vote against this, and you'll put Jacob Rees-Mogg in Downing Street, because I'll have to resign as leader, and then who knows what's going to happen. I mean, which do you think <laughs> would terrify some of these Tories more? <laughs> well, Nigel Farage significantly was backing Rees-Mogg as leader, um, only only today in The Telegraph. Um, and I think, I don't know, the, the difficulty is that still there is little appetite amongst the cabinet to start a leadership race. Although they're all manoeuvring and we're hearing today about them sorting war chests out, even Amber Rudd, who's damaged goods, looking at some sort of leadership yeah. war chest. And Michael Gove was keeping his options open. A lot of chat about that. Um, still, still, despite all that, I don't think anyone's got the appetite for a leadership contest. The one to watch, I think, is David Davis, because I think David Davis, I mean, he said yesterday he thought he'd, it would, he would have failed if uh, the parliament votes for a customs union. Now, if you think you've failed, you probably, as a man of honour, quit your post. And if he quits, who knows what repercussions that would have if David Davis quits the government. Words which we never thought we'd hear about David Davis. But there we go. Let's move on, shall we, now to anti-Semitism. Yes, again, this week the Labour Party was engulfed in a row over anti-Semitism and its handling of uh, the issues around that. Here's uh, Jonathan Arkush, who is president of the Board of Deputies of British British Jews, on Sky News with Adam Bolton, talking about the meeting he had with Jeremy Corbyn on Tuesday. Your position is that Jeremy Corbyn, as leader of the Labour Party, is not getting on top of this. That is our position, and the evidence that we saw from our meeting, he seems to be unable or unwilling to take control and to take the measures, the minimum measures necessary to stamp out anti-Semitism in his corner of the Labour Party. We saw the incredible scenes this week, wasn't it? Because we had uh, Ruth Smith, who was going to mm. give evidence at a hearing of a Labour member who'd been accused of anti-Semitism, having to be flanked by around mm. 40 Labour MPs and peers because of the protests going on outside Labour HQ, saying this was all a witch hunt. Yes. It was mad. It was weird. Yeah, she was it, walk- it was from the video you, you saw walking along with these sunglasses on like some sort of rock star. It was, you know, it was quite sort of a really strange thing to be associated with politics. And the fact that she felt she needed that is horrendous. Yeah. You shouldn't have to have you have that support from anyone to go to that kind of event. The fact she felt she needed all that kind of backing. I also thought the meeting that Corbyn had with the um, Board of Deputies and the, I forget the name of the other Jewish group, Leadership, Leadership Council. Council, the fact that they came out with such different statements, the fact that the kind of the Jewish groups came out and said that was terrible, he didn't say anything we wanted, and the Labour statement was, oh, it was all fine. Now, I don't know whether that's because they thought it was fine or they realised it wasn't but thought they'd say it was okay, Paul. I don't... I, I think... You think Corbyn, I mean, just, <coughs> the, the difference was extraordinary. It seems to me that Jeremy Corbyn felt, uh, if I just, just going to the meeting is enough. That seems to be that was that's the attitude, right? Well, I'm not sure about that. I think actually it comes back down to how the fact that Labour, Jeremy Corbyn is at heart a backbencher. He's not a frontbencher, so he's not used to 
holding or chairing a meeting and being forceful in chairing a meeting. He's just, you know, he's not he's in his nature. And you hear this about shadow cabinet meetings. He will let everyone say their piece, but he won't sort of lead off as Ed Miliband and other leaders used to. So, And I suspect it, what it seems to me reading from both sides of that meeting on, on Tuesday night is that basically he wasn't forthcoming. He didn't sort of clearly state what his position was. He would sort of, and Jenny Formby as well, um, they both seemed to talk round some issues. That's what the Jewish groups are suggesting. And at one point, Corbyn was said to have shrugged. And that is, you can imagine the body language whereby he knows these, and he's quite defensive about it anyway. Um, and you can imagine him thinking that he was going to trip up and say the wrong thing and then absolutely certain that he wasn't committed to it and so I suspect what happened in that meeting was that he went in or was told look here's a set of demands and then didn't elaborate on yeah. them and, and also, they felt really frustrated and I can imagine there was a report that said he focused too much on process and Jeremy Corbyn really likes to talk about the process of things um, it gets him in trouble a lot. It's actually what got him in trouble when it was claimed he said we should trigger Article 50 immediately. Yeah. Now, I don't actually think that's what he said. He was just kind of laying out, this is now the procedure we have to follow. He loves talking about yeah. the process of stuff in that kind of old left way. And I can imagine him doing that in that meeting and that really getting on the and nerves. To be of, fair rather, to... rather than saying, okay, I'm going to change the processes or I'm going to take this action yeah. of the leader. Like just you say, he's a... To, be, fa- to taking... be fair, I think process, don't forget, is well, really uh, important. Sure. You know, and... Um, but it's not the only mm. thing. And I think um, the, we had this blog, didn't we, by Mike Crichton, who used to run Labour's compliance unit. Um, he wrote a very sort of withering blog he wrote yesterday about Labour and anti-Semitism. And this is a guy who used to run Labour's compliance unit, basically in charge of the rules, in charge of kicking people out, um, who was basically saying there is no political will. And this is something you hear quite a lot from staff in the Labour Party, some of whom have left, but some of whom are still there. That actually, this whole row is being dumped on them. The implication is that it's the staff's fault. They're just delaying. The, the, these cases should be speeded up and, you know, and, and it'll be all OK as long as we speed up the process. But it, the process does involve politics as well as just a hearing. And... Um, Mike was making the point, and I've talked to other people in the party make the point, that actually this isn't a legal process necessarily on its own. This is a political party. You don't have a right to a party membership. It's a privilege. And because it's a privilege, you have to adhere to the party's aims and values. Now, that's not a legal term. And I looked up what you can get actually formally expelled for. And the, the rule is clear. No member of the party shall engage in conduct which in the opinion of the NEC is prejudicial or in any act which in the opinion of the NEC is grossly detrimental to the party. That's a really broad mm. definition. And it's up to a leader to make it less broad and say, right, Something that's grossly detrimental is anything to do with anti-Semitism. I'm not going to tolerate it. And that can be set from the top. And I think that's where Jeremy Corbyn, in getting bogged down in some of the process, has, has, has had, again, another blind spot on it. We are now joined by one of the fantastic reporters here at HuffPost, Sophie Gallagher. Hello, Sophie. Hi. Who wrote a fantastic piece this week about the reality of raising a family in a hotel room and it's a really amazing piece it's on Twitter it's on our website I tweeted it out a few times um, and it's just sort of extraordinary how how some so many children are living in hotel rooms at the moment and the kind of life they have and what, where did this story sort of come from? So I think on our team we'd been speaking a lot about I think post Grenfell and, and other things there's been a lot of conversation around temporary accommodation 
but we didn't really know what that looks like. So you can discuss it as a policy, but day to day, what does that look like for the families who are living there? Um, you know, children going to school, those kind of things. So I spoke to a few different families and the one that was the most striking, which is the one that Owen was just talking about, was the Burns family, who due to a kind of bizarre and extraordinary set of circumstances ended up living in Premier Inn hotels around Bristol for three years. Um, they have when they first started they had two children and then they had three by the time they moved out of these hotels um and speaking to those families and speaking to other people who work with homeless families I think we started to see this kind of pattern of although that seems as I just said to be like a really the perfect storm for you know such a long time spent in temporary accommodation actually a lot of people are experiencing this um and I think it was kind of two issues came up. One was an issue of temporary accommodation. And the second issue is this intentional homelessness uh, thing that, that councils are, are now using or seemingly using um, to, tr to try and help them in tackling the problem of finding accommodation for people. One of the other people you talked about was uh, single mother Naomi in yeah. Camden. Her name is not a real name, but um, she had uh, th her and her three children living in a single hostel room. The kids are all under 18 months old um, and Naomi's life was spent on the bed, the only place she could sit to feed the children and change them. I mean, it's just, I mean, obviously it affects grown-ups, you know, but it affects the children as well. But yeah. there must be a real guilt that these people have, these parents have, thinking this Absolutely. is the life I provided, which yeah. is just going to make things worse, right? Yeah, definitely. So I think with Naomi, um, I didn't speak to her directly. I was speaking through, there's a charity called Doorstep Homeless Project in Camden who've been working with Naomi and many others. And uh, Vicky Fox, who, who runs the charity was telling me she has been working with homeless families for 28 years and when she first started you'd see families in temporary accommodation for two years was exceptional that was really exceptional now she's regularly seeing families with children in temporary accommodation for up to 10 years now if you have children 10 years is a childhood isn't it it's a it's a whole childhood spent in a single room essentially not always the same room but in a single room and she was sharing these really heartbreaking stories of children who, when they're at school, they won't accept invites to their peers' homes because they can't reciprocate the invite because they don't want to bring them over because there's nowhere to play and there's nowhere to do homework. And so it's not just a case of, as you just said about it affecting the adults, their, their whole childhood and their friendships and things like that are affected because they, you know, they haven't got a permanent home. So. And, and Obviously, you spoke to charities who help with this. Have they mm. put forward any kind of solutions? I mean, what is it, is it just simply build more social homes? I mean, is that is it as simple as that? I, I mean, when you boil it down, yeah, it, it is. Um, it's building more social homes. Um, and also, as well, they spoke a lot about the issue of, I kind of mentioned it briefly before, about councils changing the eligibility for uh, being, you know, being able to declare a family intentionally homeless. So the Burns family, who were the people in Bristol staying at the Premier Inn hotels, Bristol Council said that they were intentionally homeless. Uh, their, their private rental flooded um, and they were forced to leave and then uh, they weren't eligible for emergency accommodation 
because they were intentionally homeless, according to the council, which this this a few weeks ago was by, declared by the ombudsman to be, have been illegal and they have now been given compensation and a public apology. Um, but as far as the Burns family are concerned, although, fa- although their story seems unique in you know kind of the way I've said like with these set of circumstances actually when they were in these hotels they met other families who were in the same situation and although that hasn't you know that hasn't been acknowledged by Bristol Council and you know that hasn't been raised but they said that, that they weren't the only ones going through this yeah. and it's a question of power isn't it because you're really quite powerless in that situation mm. and if you are powerless some people are actually really scared of speaking out and so we don't know just how widespread the problem is it could be really even more widespread Widespread because people are worried about being going public, Absolutely. and I, and I know that people have uh, certainly charities have campaigned about it, and Labour have stepped up their attack line on this. But the idea of hidden homeless, you know, is is something that really hasn't got enough attention. Yeah, and definitely. it's uh, and it seems to me that we talked with the Windrush stuff about how people were putting policies and systems before people. And uh, Ned, do you think this is another example of it, isn't it of people actually, you know, people fall through the cracks, people because yeah. they don't. They yeah. don't fit into this nice little design system by someone on the desk in Whitehall. And exactly, and I think as Sophie mentions about the council kind of changing the the rules, they can kind of get out of having to look after people for, I don't know if it's targets or whatever they feel the reason for doing it. it it's just outrageous. And again, not seeing the human faces, it's it's horrendous. Um, Sophie, do you want to stay for the quiz? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I want to stay yeah. for no, the quiz. Yes, definitely, <laughs> definitely don't. Quiz by saying yeah, that a tweet from a listener, uh, Christine Quigley, who tweeted in to say, the quiz is not normally my favourite bit of the podcast. I'm annoyed. Sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. She's yeah, on my side. Listening uh, to last week's Mannix politics quiz oh made my, my commute home. God. So we're going to have another Mannix quiz. Did, no, we're not. Did it say it made my commute home much longer? No, no, no. no stop, full stop. So this week there was a, a statue unveiled of Millicent Fawcett, of course, in Parliament Square. She became the first woman to have a statue in Parliament Square. I'm going to now see... Uh, if you know whether these people have got a statue in Parliament Square or not. This game is called Statue of Limitations. <laughs> and what are the options? <laughs> if so, you could see Owen's face, listeners, <laughs> he's never if, been more pleased in his if life. If I say a name and the person is there, Rock of Ages. Right. right? If they're not okay, there, right, get off my stages. That's What's terrible. That is truly awful. How about statue or statue? Stat me. No, 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 no. no, no, no. I've, I've, it's written into the scripts. Okay, so I'm going to say a name now. I want you to tell me: Has uh, Winston Churchill has he got a statue in Parliament Square, Sophie? I know he has one inside, but I'm not sure about outside. Would they double up? Yeah, definitely of course does. they would. Yeah, is that a great one with him with a stick and there's a pigeon shitting on his head? Often. That's not part of the statue. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, what do you reckon? Yeah, yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah. So that's for yeah. Easy. Right, easy. Okay. He was given a great Mohican once by he, protesters. Do you remember with the with, with the, the, grass, with the, the turf yeah. on his head? Um, Edward Smith Stanley, the fourteenth Earl of Derby. <laughs> has he I, got bet, a statue? I bet he has. Fourteenth Earl. Yeah, you're of Derby. thinking. You, you, I know you know about the thirteenth. Uh, <laughs> Edward Smith Stanley, the, the race the Derby was named after. I'm going to say those, no. Um, was it? Yeah, but I'm going to say no because you just tripped it off your tongue so quickly. <laughs> No, I don't. I think incorrect. He has got a statue oh. there. Oh, where, where is it? Guys. I don't know. Sophie, oh, join the politics team. <laughs> it's uh, find it out. It's in. It's in the square. Um, okay. Has uh, Gladstone got a statue there? I think he does. William yeah. Hewitt. Yeah. Gladstone. Yeah. I think he does. Sophie? I'm gonna go for no. 
Mm, you'd be wrong. He does. Uh, Pitts the Younger. No. Prime Minister at the age of 24. Definitely not. I don't think so. The time that Ned... No. Uh, <laughs> what was that? Oh, Ned. <laughs> Ned's not old. He made that joke about me, but you leave him full alone. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. Definitely not. I'm going to go for no as well. He hasn't. You're right. Um, get off my stages. He hasn't. Uh, I'm not using the thing. <laughs> Cecil yeah. Rhodes. The African imperialist. No, because that was um, a university, wasn't it? There was a whole row about... You could have more than one statue of someone, Ned. No, you can't. Yes, you can. One statue per, per country. <laughs> There's roads in the Parliament Square. Born, born in Bishop Stalford, where I grew up, I don't. I genuinely don't know. Yeah, I know. It's good, though, isn't it? It's yeah, good. a little tidbit. I'll take that. When somebody finally gets around to my fucking Wikipedia page, put that in. I don't know if he is. I know Jan Smut is. There's a statue. There of is him. a statue to Jan Smut. Do we get yeah. points for extra no, no, no. information? No, we don't. In fact, we lose points. Uh, um, I'm going to say no. There is no roads. Cecil Rhodes. Ces- yeah. There's no um, roads. Get off my stages. There is no statue to Cecil Rhodes. Because it would have been toppled by now. Sure. Racist. Yeah. So uh, yeah. Um, has um, uh, Henry John Temple the third Viscount Palmerston? Yeah, um, he got one. Palmerston. Palmerston, Lord Palmerston. I feel like I'm going to say yes. Mm. <laughs> I was really disappointed about that Shania Twain thing. What back in Trump? Yeah, yeah. it was a really good interview in the Guardian. Yeah, it was like this is really interesting yeah. and heartfelt, yeah. and then at the end ruined it. Anyway, yeah. uh, no, to the question. All right, <laughs> I'm going to go yes. I'm going to go yes. Yeah, you're right. Oh. Uh, so you can see now why people were a bit annoyed because um, a lot of these people I've never heard of. Who's, who's Gandhi? No, I'm joking. Uh, so, no, so I'll give you, shall I give you the Jan full... Smuts is the really yeah, odd one. Yeah, Jan Smuts because Churchill insisted apparently that Jan Smuts had him. He was oh, a former he? president of South Africa, I think. He was. Um, shall I give you the full list? Please do. Because I know you're dying for this. Oh, season. I am. She Don't says, you she's dying. Thing. Looking at the door desperately. <laughs> she's dying inside. Um, Abraham Lincoln, Benjamin Disraeli, Edward Smith Stanley, David Lloyd George, Gandhi, Gladstone, George Canning, mm. uh, Winston Churchill, Nelson Mandela, Robert Peel, course bobbies uh henry john temple and jan or jan smuts and now millicent Fawcett. who's henry john temple i did not go that for palmerston is that his real name yeah oh well that's Um, weird the Fawcett statue is good isn't it yes all right i'm not seeing it yet i've not seen it in in its it's rachel weirmouth no, it's not. What do you mean it's Rachel? <laughs> Hang on. Whoa, really? Rachel White Reed. That was a gag. Oh, right. Yeah, so it's an art gag, don't worry. Oh, right. Way over my head. Straight over head. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was this week's quiz. Um, Statue of Limitations. Oh, I'm glad I stayed for that. Yeah. <laughs> if only the listeners had. Yay, but um, thank you for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Say goodbye, Sophie. Goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.